begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're kind of continuing that sermon series, um, defining what it means to be a Christian, and today we're going to look specifically at um, how does God feed us, how does He feed you, and then ultimately what, what purpose, for what reason is He doing that. Um, there are, some of you have heard the quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, a mar an army marches on its stomach, yes. Can that same be said about a congregation? Maybe. You haven't eaten your snacks yet this morning, right? So some of you are, eating, you're, some of you are stealing the fruit snacks from your kids right now, aren't you? Right? So, yeah, because he didn't get breakfast, right? Um, so Napoleon said that uh, in, a, in a military sense that a um, an army marches on its stomach, but I think even on some level, we understand that for ourselves as well, right? Uh, if, we are, if we do not have the correct nutrition, if we skip breakfast, we skip these things, um, it, it can affect us on a whole myriad of levels, right? So not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, all those kind of things, um, we, we recognize that we're lacking. Uh, so Napoleon said that, but I think militaries and nations have known that for, for generations and generations, and therefore, um, lots of food-based inventions have been created based off of the difficulty of keeping your troops fed, because if you can't keep your troops fed, they can't continue their mission and keep fighting. Okay, so some of these inventions that started in military campaigns, started for the sake of, of, of armies and to sustain soldiers and things like that, um, have trickled their way into our lives. Um, and some of them you probably know. Can you think of any foods that came to us that we eat that were invented to solve the problem of keeping soldiers fed? What was that? Raisins? Oh, I don't know that one. That one... I should have consulted with you ahead of time. I thought I heard someone say spam. Did you? That, yeah. So um, um, spam might be the biggest one um, that we know of. So spam was created, World War II was intended for the military, um, and, then, and then we have all been blessed with the invention of spam. Um, this is a real fascinating one, too, because this is also generationally, I've found, um, is a little bit different. So um, if you're like me and you're getting a little bit of gray hair and you're a little bit older, spam is, is, is completely known. And um, I, was, I felt as though I had completely failed my children as a father when my teenage kids said they, they did not know what spam was and they had never tasted it. I thought, what am I doing? I know, what am I doing? My kids are not even going to be able to grow up in this world, right? So, okay. So, spam is the first one, at least food-based one. Um, but there's, there's quite a few other inventions that have come out of the necessity to eat and to fuel a military. So, this one, microwave, yep, yep. Um, um, invented uh, for armies in order to sustain them, okay? How about this one, M&M's? You know that? Yeah, M&M's came out of war. Uh, I believe it was the Spanish Civil War. And because if you were eating pieces of chocolate, they would melt on the battlefield. So if you coat them in, in a sugar coating, they don't, what's the term? They melt in your mouth, not in your hands. There you go. Okay. So M&M's has done good marketing for all of you. I can see that. Uh, so M&M's, we are blessed with those because of that. Um, this one, oh, actually, yeah, I think that's it. If you look close, this is not just regular coffee, it's 
instant coffee, okay? So maybe um, instant coffee you're very happy about. Uh, this is one that I think kids should appreciate, but Cheetos, yeah, Cheetos. Like we would not be blessed with Cheetos in our world if it wasn't for solving a problem, right? Uh, and what preceded Cheetos was the invention of dehydrated cheese and all of those things that kind of came out of it, right? Uh, and then the last one, this is the one that I find um, the most life-changing and most impactful uh, in our kitchen at the Spiegelberg house, the air fryer. Now, some of you are like, I don't, I don't get it. You should try an air fryer. It's arguably better than a microwave. So, okay. Um, but once again, came out of trying to solve an issue. Uh, air fryer was a little bit interesting. Um, uh, there was a guy that was in the Navy that, that created, a, it's basically a small convection oven and used that in the military in the, in the Navy, but then they, they, they didn't have any use for it. So they kind of dropped it and he didn't make any money and then he died and then they re-released it in about, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And now all of us own air fryers. So I feel a little bit bad for the guy that that invented it, right? But, but all these things um, um, came out of a necessity uh, to, to eat, right? Um, so invention came from a need in the first place. Today in our lesson, we're going to hear of a need, uh, specifically in the people that were in front of the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and we're going to see Jesus um, solve it through the use of a miracle. Um, and yet, that miracle points to something far greater than just uh, um, bread and fish on your plate or a meal in front of you. Uh, and, and ultimately, that's what Jesus' life points us to. So, our theme this morning is going to simply be sustenance. And then I decided uh, to take it further uh, and just use, use courses of meals as our points during our sermon text today. So uh, here's how we're going to kind of go through it. We'll have a little bit of an appetizer. Remember, appetizers aren't meant to be the whole meal, right? Uh, then we'll talk about the main course, what Christ's miracle means for us. And then at the end of it, you get to go home with some takeout. You get to take some things away with you this morning. So... Yeah, so, uh, so that, that's kind of where we're headed this morning. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to. Uh, our text is in the bulletin. You'll find it on the screen here behind me as well. Uh, and we're going to start out just with verse 13 and 14. So I'll read that for you this morning. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Okay? So now a little bit of scene setting as to exactly what's going on in this text that we have uh, um, before us. Uh, um, Jesus, in, in his ministry, this is a little bit of a turning point in the sense that, that um, he had been publicly ministering, he had per performing miracles, he had been out and visible and, and in the countryside of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, um, and he had been doing all these things. But about here at the feeding of the 5,000, at this miracle, um, Jesus' ministry starts to take a, a little bit of a subtle turn. Okay? Um, the, the opposition to him starts to increase. Right, So um, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders are starting to take greater notice of Jesus. So they're looking at him and saying, okay, um, this does not seem like a passing fad. In fact, increasing amounts of people are following him and listening to him and being influenced by him. And so they start cranking up their opposition to him, right? Um, 
this is also about the time when Jesus increasingly um, starts to use the word withdraw. So we'll see time and time again, and even in our text here today, that Jesus starts to withdraw to solitary places. He, he starts to, he'll, he'll go pray, but oftentimes he takes his disciples along with him. See, some of those that would have called themselves disciples, um, when persecution started to crank up, they started to drop by the wayside, okay? So some that had been followers of Jesus up to this point started to kind of crumble away. And so what Jesus starts to do is focus on those that remained and specifically his own 12 disciples. And so he pours into them because he understood that they were going to be the leaders of the early Christian church. So you see this kind of subtle shift that's happening in Jesus' ministry at the point of our text here today. Um, and, and what we want to look at specifically is as he saw those crowds, he had compassion on them and he healed them. So if we want to know Jesus' motivation for his earthly ministry, that's it, right? He had compassion on them and he healed them. And we see that in, in, a, in a physical, tangible way in the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 today. Um, but the truth is we see that in many of his, of his miracles. Uh, this miracle took place on the Sea of Galilee. So if you're thinking, if you're spatial like I am, and you're thinking of a map, Sea of Galilee is in the north uh, east corner of Jerusalem. Out of the Sea of Galilee comes Jordan River that flows down. Much of Jesus' ministry was done in and around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen who had made their living and lived and worked on the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is one site where that feeding of the 5,000 5, may have taken place. We're not 100% sure exactly where on the Sea of Galilee it took place. Uh, this is actually a mural from a church in the town of Tagba um, in the, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and this is a mural that is, is depicting the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The church that is there is colloquially called uh, the Church of the Multiplication. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and it's not about math, right? But it's about uh, five loaves and two fish. So, um, so we're not exactly sure where on the Sea of Galilee it happened. Um, some will say that it happened in the north. Some will say that it happened, um, they actually found some new archaeological evidence and maybe it was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But regardless, um, Jesus was there and he performs this miracle uh, um, feeding those who were there. And maybe that's the first thing we want to kind of look at is uh, whenever Jesus performed miracles on the pages of Scripture, it was always for a purpose. Ultimately, it was out of compassion for those that were there, but it was also meant to point to who he was and why he was truly there, right? So not just to put bread and fish on your plates, but to be the Savior and Lord of all. So whenever Jesus performs a miracle, it's ultimately a sign, a clear indication of who he was, right? Nothing short of the Son of God. But secondarily, what's kind of interesting about Jesus' miracles, if you think of all the, think of all the fantastic things you could do to astound people or to, to cause them to pause, um, or, or to have them see you as powerful and mighty and all. Think of all the things that were at the fingertips of Jesus that he could do with his miracles. 
Um, he, he could have, he could cause lightning, angels. I mean, we could, I mean, your mind can go wild on what he could possibly do to draw, in a sense, draw attention to himself. But if you notice, all of his miracles um, are not attention-seeking in that way. In fact, most of his miracles, in fact, almost all of his miracles, um, on some level, were fixing the brokenness that he saw in front of him and in the people's lives that he was performing the miracle on. Okay? So if you think of uh, um, um, the natural world that our God created and it was supposed to work in this way and yet sin came in through Adam and Eve and it's broken and since then uh, um, things are fractured and broken and our world kind of grinds away and sometimes those gears even grind to a halt. Jesus' miracles on some level um, restore that movement, right? So Jesus' miracles on some level um, say um, people ought not to be blind and lame and, and lose loved ones and, and feel all the brokenness of this world. And so when Christ would perform miracles, rather than, than, than changing the laws, it was more of a return to how it ought to be. And it was always focused on compassion, right? So he could have done anything, but you want to know what he did? He healed people, and he gave them eyesight, and he, and he allowed them to see, and he, and he fixed their legs so they could walk again, and he raised people from the dead, and he fed them physically on the plains on the shore of Sea of Galilee. So whenever Jesus performed these miracles, they were astounding, absolutely a point to who he was and as our Lord and Savior, but they also were a restoration, and maybe maybe just a, a taste and a small bite of what eternity will be like, where things are set in place and in order, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more brokenness, uh, no more medications we have to take, no more being hooked up to machines, no need for doctors and nurses and hospitals, um, because all will work as it should and as it is intended to do. And so Jesus' miracles did those two things, that he was Lord of all, but also demonstrates his compassion, right? And kind of point our eyes to eternity. So that's what he does in our miracle here today uh, of the feeding of 5,000. Let's continue on with our, our text here. Verse 15 through 17. Jesus says this, <clears throat> As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Okay, so now what exactly is Jesus doing with his disciples? Um, I, I don't know if we'd call it a test, but kind of a test, right? He's putting it to his disciples saying, okay, we've got all these people and by this point you've seen the things I can do. How about you come to me and ask me and say, um, you know, will you help? Jesus, instead, Jesus says, no, you, you figure it out, right? Their response isn't to say, okay, we know you're Lord of all. We know that you can do this. Instead, they kind of have, well, this will never happen. We've only got five loaves of bread and two fish, right? On some level, maybe Jesus was raising their sights from, and maybe their sights were far too low from what he was and what he had come to do. Um, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 um, it is the only miracle in the four gospel writers uh, that, is, that is in all four of them at the same time. 
right? Apart from Jesus' resurrection, this is the only one that's shared in all four Gospels. Now, why might this miracle have made such an impact on all four of the Gospel writers? I think maybe because at its base and at its basic level, it was just fulfilling so many needs that everyone was aware of. Not only were people being fed, but as we're going to see in the book of John, Jesus says this is far more than just food on a plate. In fact, he calls himself the bread of life. And so this makes an impact on those disciples, right? All four of them record this event because it not only filled stomachs, but it also filled them spiritually from there on out. And I think that's something that, at least on the outset, we need as well. Think of hunger maybe as a physical reaction, but the truth is there's a spiritual hunger that we have as well. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of the term uh, the empty chair. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grieving term, it's a trauma term, um, that when, we, when, when you've lost loved ones, where is it most evident? Oftentimes, it's when you are back together with your family and you're sitting around a table, maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's Easter, and everyone is sitting at their chairs, but that loved one is absent, okay? Uh, it, it's a pretty common thing, I think, for each and every one, and maybe even in your mind, as I was describing it, you were thinking of um, family gatherings, events that you had gone to that, uh, uh, where your loved one was no longer there, where there was an empty chair. I think it's a good reminder for us of why Christ ultimately came. And it's not just to put food on the table, but it's ultimately to break the back of death and hell and Satan and eternity altogether. See, Christ came to, and in our text, he not only physically feeds people, maybe as many as 15,000, but ultimately he would give his life to feed the world, right? wash sins away. And so when we eat, when we dine, when we break bread, when we sit with the people we love, and when at times we see the absence of someone else, that's the reason Christ came, <laughs> right? For our brokenness, for our pain, for our loss, and for the things that are missing in our lives. That's why Christ came, and that's how he feeds us. And so I think on some level, that's exactly what he was trying to reveal for these disciples, right? He, puts it, he says, how is this going to be solved? They say, ah, I think it's hopeless. And Jesus had other ideas, right? Now, I mentioned uh, this is the only miracle that's, that uh, shows up in all four gospel writers. Um, and our text today um, is a little bit shorter version of it, but John actually goes a little bit further and explains exactly what this miracle meant and um, shares with us the words Jesus spoke after the feeding of the 5,000. says this in John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so what is Jesus telling those disciples in us here today? Um, um, no matter how hard we strive, no matter how hard we work, the things of this world, whether it's your job, your career, 
relationships, uh, um, um, pleasure, vacations, all these kinds of things. None of the things of this world will ultimately be able to satisfy us eternally. Jesus says the only thing that will is Him. The book of John tells us that. He says work for eternal food, right? So not just the here and now, and you're going to be hungry in another eight hours, but eternal food, right? He says that's exactly why I've come. So let's go into, our, into our, the actual uh, miracle then. Verse 18 says this, Bring them here to me, Jesus said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. So, miracle, fed them physically, but ultimately pointing to something far greater, right? Not just physical earthly satisfaction, but spiritual satisfaction that we can't find anywhere this side of heaven other than Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Uh, My mom's here this morning, uh, and so I'll tell a story about my childhood. Um, Actually, I had this story already picked out before my mom was going to come. We would come home from school, uh, about, I'd say about 3, 3.30, and I kind of had this routine. We'd come home from school, and we had a small 13-inch black and white TV, and about 3.30 in the afternoon, for some odd reason, uh, reruns of Star Trek were on. So if you want a side story of why I like Star Trek and I'm weird that way, that's probably why. So I'd come home, and, and I'd sit down, and I'd, I'd watch an episode of Star Trek, right? Um, but I was a kid, right? And so I come home and, and I was, of course, hungry. And you want to know what my mom would tell me? Make yourself some toast, right? Now, um, said, make yourself some toast. And then she usually followed it up with this statement, toast fills the hole. Okay? You remember saying that to me? Yeah, toast fills the hole. Now, um, I think it was just, now my mom uh, is a wonderfully Christian woman and a deep theologian, I think. Uh, So uh, I think when she said toast fills the hole, on the surface it was when you have uh, young young, uh, adults and they come home from school, they just will eat you out of house and home. So if you just kind of fill them up with bread, that'll fill the hunger inside their stomachs. Um, What maybe, I don't know that she was referring to, but maybe she was. Um, toast may fill our physical hole or fill us up, um, but the truth is there's a spiritual hole in us as well, and toast does not fill it, and neither do the things of this world or anything else that we can eat, but ultimately only the bread of life in Christ, right? So if, if, if toast will sustain a young man after school, right, only Christ will sustain every one of us to eternity, John said that very same thing after this miracle in his book. He says this, verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so it's far bigger than just feeding 15,000 people on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Christ came to give his life for yours, to fill the spiritual hole that nothing this side of heaven can fill, to fill your spiritual hunger and know without a shadow of a doubt that you are, you are forgiven, that you are loved, and that an eternal banquet in heaven is what awaits you. 
And so Jesus' miracle, maybe on its surface, astounded people. But it pales in comparison to the other miracle that we are shared, that all four Gospels share, which is his resurrection. Breaking the back of sin, Satan, and death. Reassuring you that you are loved and that you are forgiven. That no matter how much you have or how little you have, that when you have Christ, you have it all. And that that meal is, is awaiting you in eternity. That's how God sustains us. Okay, so what can we take away? One last childhood story. Uh, some of you know that I grew up in Alaska. And uh, what you eat as a kid, and some of your favorites kind of vary, I think, based on geography and, and where you're from. Uh, so uh, does this look good to anyone? This is uh, a nice plate of salmon. Okay, how much do you think we pay for that? More, th- more than you want, probably, right? So, okay. All right, so I grew up in Alaska, uh, and Alaska has lots and lots of salmon. And as a kid, I was so sick of salmon. Oh, I'm dead serious. Every church potluck, every leftover in the, in the fridge, every meal that we ever had, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Wild, fresh caught salmon again? It's like, right? I mean, like literally potlucks with like full slabs of smoked salmon and like crackers. And like as a kid, I'm like, I just wish like we had some ham and potatoes or something, right? I think, I think you get a little bit used to it, or, or maybe even for me in Alaska, I got a little bit spoiled. <laughs> because actually right now, some smoked salmon sounds pretty good, right? And we'll pay an arm and a leg for salmon, right? Um, I, I pray that that doesn't happen to us as believers who are regularly dining on God's word and being in his word. That it doesn't become so commonplace for us. That Christ doesn't become so routine that, that, that we kind of just push him to the back of the refrigerator and there's a little bit of Jesus left over in the back corner. But the rest of my life, you know, moves on. If we want some takeaways for us here today, I pray that we, we, we raise the beauty and the level of what Christ is and what he's done for us to its proper spot. Above all, he, he, has, he has forgiven our sins. And that is precious and that is dear and that is a banquet that is more, more beautiful and more sustaining than anything else we can dine on. And to the degree that, that the number one thing that we feed on is God and his word and his assurance that we are loved and that we are forgiven. And that we eat of it and we drink of it and we, we meditate on it and we pray about it and we, we open the pages of Scripture and, and, and we are sustained by it. And I pray that it doesn't become, I pray that it doesn't become so commonplace that it gets relegated to a back corner somewhere. And here's why. Number one, Christ is who sustains you and your faith. And if you relegate him and his word long enough, sooner or later, maybe you start to wonder if you need to eat from him at all. We increasingly start to fill ourselves with the things of this world rather than eternal food that lasts into eternity. Right? But the second thing is, Christ is the only nourishment that your family, your friends, your neighbors, and your community actually needs. We can do lots of things as a church. We could do food banks, we can do ESL, we can, we can do all of these programs. We can, we can, 
maybe vainly try to solve all the issues of the world, but if, if we are not consistently and constantly sharing Christ and, and, and um, putting Him in front of the people around us in our families, then we've done them a disservice. And we are spiritually starving them and ourselves. So our takeaway is not only dying on Christ and His Word regularly, strengthen your faith to nourish you, but take that with you. The people you love, to your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, your kids, your parents. It's the only meal that fills the spiritual hole within each of us. It's the only meal that not only sustains us through um, good times and bad, through, through joys and suffering, but it's the only meal that ultimately will sustain us into eternity. And so our text today, Jesus performs a miracle. All four Gospels share it. But it points to something far more basic, far more beautiful, and far more needful for you and I and for the world around us. Christ is our bread of life. He sustains you. He, he is that which, which feeds and nourishes the world around us. My prayer for you, for us, as we go forward, is that we dine on Him and His Word and the forgiveness that we hear, see, and taste of every single time we open the pages of Scripture. And that He gives you opportunities to share that same spiritual food, that same bread of life, with the multitudes outside of these walls who are starving and looking for an eternal meal. Amen.